can turn to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3 of Genesis chapter 12. We're obviously, um, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, I should have, we're obviously taking a break from our sermon series in Mark, which we'll return to in the new year. Uh, but for now, we're, we're taking a break from Mark's gospel and diving into an Advent series, an Advent series wherein we're, we're kind of tracing some of the, um, the high point promises uh, of the Old Testament that lead us and, and ultimately point us to the coming of Jesus. In other words, we're, we're, we're tracing these promises as the people of God waited for the advent of Jesus Christ, as they waited for Christmas. And uh, last week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, wherein we saw the, the promise, the coming of the, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse and rescue us uh, back into fellowship with God again. And now... As we trace that line, we come to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. As you're turning there, if you would, take a moment. If you're a guest with us, fill out a Connect card. And that's a good uh, way for us to to get to know a little bit about you and and, uh, know how we can be praying for you and how we can get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, In addition to that, we have like a a weekly bulletin of sorts that we send out. Um, if you want to know like what the liturgy is for the upcoming week and what announcements are and all that stuff, it's all there in an email that we send out on Friday. And so you can uh, sign up for that on the Connect card, uh, and then we'll know to add you to that list and, and send that to you as well. And when you fill out a Connect card, you can either give it to me or put it in one of the, uh, the wooden box thing back there or give it to one of the leaders you see up here, uh, whomever, and we'll make sure that those get in the right hands. But We'd love to get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family if you're a guest with us. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll jump into our sermon and, and text here. Uh, Father, we, we give you thanks for this time together. We give you thanks that uh, you have given us your word and all of its um, perfection, inerrancy, sufficiency, clarity, Uh, that you have revealed Christ to us within it, that you have revealed yourself through Christ in it to us so that we can know you and know what you're like and know that you are gracious and good beyond what we're even able to understand. We pray that you would help us then to get a, a, a clearer sight of you this morning in your promises and in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, the great uh, Puritan Richard Sibbs, he once compared God and his goodness to the life-giving sun that shines upon us. He said this, he said that, that God is like the sun that delights to spread its beams and influence and inferior things to make all things fruitful. Such a goodness is in God as is in a fountain or in the breast that loves to ease itself of milk. My question to you then, is is that your view of God? Do you view him like a a son who delights in spreading his life-giving beams upon us? 
Do you believe that, that God is like a, a fountain of goodness that delights in drenching us with, with streams of blessing? Do you believe that God in his great, big, magnanimous heart truly wants to bless you? You believe that he plans, intends, and desires to do you good. Do you trust that he wants you and all that he has made to experience magnificent, unending, uncompromised, unimpeded blessing forever and ever? Well, you ought to because he says right here in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that he intends to do precisely that. And he tells us that he plans to do it through a man named Abram. So if you want to turn... Genesis 12, if you're not already there, and stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And let's listen with delight and joy and reverence to the promises of our God. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually go back and read, uh, starting in chapter 11, and read on from verse 27 of chapter 11 on in through 12.3. Let's do that. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I want to give you the, the ABCs of this text here. Because if you, if you understand this text, as Jim Hamilton says, is a, is a kind of programmatic text for all of the Bible. If you understand this, you're on a good path to reading and understanding the whole Bible well. So I want to give you the sort of ABCs of this passage. Abram, blessing, and Christ. Abram, blessing, and Christ. Abram, and here we're going to look at the Lord's power displayed in the most unlikely of places. Blessing, and, and here we see the Lord's plan to undo the curse. And then Christ, the Lord's promise fulfilled in Abram's seed. And first, we, we want to look at Abram. Of course, our text begins by saying, Now the Lord said to Abram, and that just begs the question, Who is Abram? Who is this guy? And, and now we come to our text having skipped over a, a, a good nine chapters from our last Sunday here. But one of the things that you'll remember uh, from when we read you know, Genesis and, and as we read the Old Testament in the whole is that we're to keep our eye out for this seed, this, 
this offspring of Genesis 3.15. God promised that one day, one would be born of a woman and he would undo the curse and crush the head of our serpentine enemy. And Genesis makes it very easy for us to kind of trace this line, the seed of the woman, because Eve literally gives us a good starting point in Genesis 4, 25 to 26. She says that Seth is the continuation of this seed, and then that the line of Seth is the the continuation of this righteous line of descendants coming from Adam and Eve that we're to keep our eye on. And we see this very clearly because in Genesis 4, 26 and 27, see that to Seth is born a man named Enosh. Seth is the seed, and then Enosh is the continuing seed there. And Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us that in that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's a, that's a way of saying that people began to cry out to God in prayer and repentance. People turned to the Lord, and this is in great contrast to the rest of humanity at the time and the seed of the serpent there, because in Genesis 3 uh, through 11, what we find is humanity descending into greater and greater depths of depravity and wickedness. And so as you read on through Genesis, you continue to trace this line of Seth with hope and with eager expectation, and you trace his line through the narrative about the flood and and the ark and Noah. And you trace his line through through the whole debacle with the Tower of Babel when, when people gathered in this city to declare independence from God and then trying to make their own name great in contrast with God's promise to Abram here. And with those texts, we we find several genealogies throughout Genesis of tracing this seed even in the midst of all of this great wickedness. And and what we find when we trace these genealogies is that the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 comes down to a man named Abram and his wife Sarai. As you well know, most likely that later their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah, and those are often the names that we know them best by today. But, but what makes them fascinating is that they are not at all good candidates for carrying on this whole offspring business. If we were going to kind of create a, a, a resume for Abram and his being qualified to be brought into this whole offspring business, here's what we'd find here. First, he's an idolater. So this is a far cry from the days of Seth and Enosh when when the family, this family of the seed, called on the name of the Lord. Now we're brought into the days in which this family, this seed, seems to have forgotten the Lord. They worship false gods. We find this, Joshua 24.2. Joshua is, is addressing the Israelites, Abraham's physical descendants there, and he tells them, you know, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. And of course, that's what we find if we look at the text immediately prior to ours this morning. So we just read Genesis 11, 27-32. We find that Abraham's father is Terah, and they lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq. And at that place, at that time, the people there worshipped a god that we've come to know as the, the sort of moon god. And in fact, the name Terah is extremely close to the Hebrew word for moon, so they're all but indicating here that this family was worshiping this this moon god. So here we find 
that the line of Seth, the line from which the snake crusher was supposed to come, they're a bunch of moon worshipers. It's not looking good. And in fact, next, their physical likelihood to carry on the the line of the seed seems about as hopeless as their spiritual indication that they're qualified for it. You look at Genesis 12.4, find that Abram is 75 years old, and he still doesn't have any children, because as Genesis 11.30 says, Sarai, his wife, was barren. She could have no children, which infertility is a difficult and disheartening thing for any family to go through, and this is always deserving of our compassion and care and sympathy. But the magnitude of this is astounding, because again, we're looking to this man and this family to continue on the promised line of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. This is the family through whom he must come, the one who will rescue us from Satan and evil and the curse that lies upon us in creation, and yet we find he's a 75-year-old man who is unable to conceive. So that's his resume for being a candidate for this whole offspring business. He's a moon worshiper who's unable to have children. It's not looking good. And yet it's to this man, the Lord says, Genesis 12 2, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now what does that mean? Well, embedded in that is this, this promise to give him a line to continue this, this, this line of the seed to create this people out of him. In Genesis 17, 6 through 7, the Lord repeats this promise to Abram and and, and adds a bit more detail there. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So you see here, that's what's at stake. That's the promise, and Abram is the one through whom God plans to do it. Jim Hamilton, he says that this text, it shows us that that the God of the Bible is the kind of God that when he wants to make a great nation out of one man, he chooses a man whose wife can't have children. He chooses a man whose family worships the moon. Here's the point of that. The Lord is saying, your weakness cannot limit my sovereign power. Your righteousness, or or lack thereof actually, your unrighteousness does not limit my matchless grace. And in fact, he delights in choosing and using and calling what is weak and unrighteous in the world to greater display his power and grace. It's the same principle that the Apostle Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. When he tells the Corinthians, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, you can be sure of this. This call of God on Abram's life and the the fact that God used him to continue the line of this promised seed is a clear indication of the kind of people that God would save through the coming of this seed. 
What that means is that Jesus hasn't come to save us because of our impressive resumes, our strengths, our worthiness and righteousness. He's come to save us because we're weak, because we're needy, because we're broken, because we're sinful. And don't you see what freedom this offers us as the people of God, as a local church called to share life with one another? Children of God, you are freed from the burden of having to be impressive. You are freed from having to be a picturesque model of strength and omnicompetence. You are freed from having to give off the impression that you have it all together. We are free to be a community wherein we are truly vulnerable with one another about our weaknesses, about our insufficiencies, about our fears, about our failures, our weaknesses, our brokenness, our sins. Because the only one that is truly impressive around here is God and he still wants us. Doesn't he, he, doesn't he make that clear? Notice Abram hasn't even done anything yet. And the Lord says to him in Genesis 12, 2-3, I will, I will, I will, I will. Who's this whole business dependent on in the first place? Not Abram. The elderly barren moon worshiper. It's wholly and solely dependent on the powerful, sovereign, gracious God. And in that, his power and grace is displayed all the more. Just as it is with us in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in our weakness. But then what does the Lord plan to do through Abram and his offspring? This brings us next to B, blessing the Lord's, prom, or the Lord's plan to undo the curse. And now it, it, it doesn't take a genius to see here that, that this text is all about blessing. Two short verses, verses 2 to 3, the word bless is used in some form five times. The Lord says to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now, part of what we need to see here is that each of these promised blessings, they correspond to this greater context of blessing and cursing in Genesis thus far. So first notice the Lord's promise to bless Abram by making a great nation out of him. This is a promise to, to multiply Abram and his family and to make them a, a fruitful bunch, which we've already seen. And right, again, this promise develops more in Genesis 17 when the Lord tells Abraham there that he's going to multiply Abraham greatly. And this language there is then echoing a blessing we find in Genesis 1.28. When the Lord originally in the garden, before the fall and judgment and the curse upon creation, he blesses Adam and Eve, and it says there, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we see this blessing echoed here. Part of the significance of it is that it's placed within this, this backdrop of related, a related judgment and curse. It relates to the curse that we find in Genesis 3.16. And the Lord in his judgment upon us as humanity and upon creation and upon Eve says that the process of humanity being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth is going to be frustrated. He says that the process of bearing children will be painful, which has its most immediate 
kind of sphere of application is relating to the pain of childbirth, but it relates to more than that as we see Sarai here being barren as a result of that curse in Genesis 3. And yet here the Lord says that he is going to overcome this curse and this judgment that he pronounced on Adam and Eve all those years ago. He's going to overcome his own judgment and curse with blessing and grace. We see the same as we see the continuation of this promised blessing of land here. Again, he tells Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And of course, this, this promise of a nation implies a people, as we've already said, but it also implies place. God's promises almost always include promises of God's people and God's place under God's care. And here we see this place associated, this land associated with the promise, a a, a great nation. A nation implies place. He says, uh, actually in, in the very first verse, he says, go to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12, 7, when Abram arrives to the land, the Lord promises, he says to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. So there's a land promise here. And part of what might help you uh, to understand this is that the word translated as ground, land, and earth in the Old Testament, they're all the same word. And when you realize that, you'll easily recognize that Adam and Eve in the beginning, before the fall and judgment and curse, they were given a land. They were placed in the garden, in the land, and they were placed there to keep and work and cultivate the land. Of course, we see the related curse in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, where the Lord curses the ground because of humanity, and he exiles Adam and Eve from the land. And so you can easily see here that at the Lord's promise to Abram to multiply him and to give him this promised land, is kind of like a new starting point in the whole story. Ever since the curse of Genesis 3, the multiplication of humanity has been frustrated and it's been exiled from life with God in the garden land that he had originally created us for. But now he makes a promise to Abram to multiply him and to give him a land. But of course, those blessings are... Those blessings... Are, are mere streams of blessing that flow from the ever-flowing fountain of blessing himself. Because the best part about God's promises and blessings here is that God promises to give the blessing of himself to Abram. You know, the, the worst part of the curse in Genesis 3 is that it resulted in humanity's being exiled from life and communion with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve used to commune with God and walk and talk with Him in the cool of the evening. They knew Him and they were known by Him. But at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden because it was impossible for human beings who were so bad to be in communion with a God who is so good. And yet in His abounding grace and abundant goodness here, the Lord promises to overcome even that judgment with blessing. He promises Abram that he will make his name great and that he will bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse Abram. And upon that initial glance, what you might see there is a promise of protection, and that's true, that's there. But even more, what we find there is a promise of God's relational presence and favor on Abram. Again, we find this stated more explicitly in Genesis 17, 7, where the Lord promises to Abraham, saying, I will be your God to you, I will be God to you and to your offspring 
forever. You will be my people. He says, I will be yours and you will be mine. Friends, notice there, that's, that kind of language is normally reserved between a husband and a wife or a relationship between a husband and a wife. That kind of language of I will be yours and you will be mine forever. That's what a husband says to his beloved bride. And yet what we find in Scripture is that that relationship between a husband and his bride is really just an echo of the relationship that God has with his people. You see, friends, God wants to bless us, and he wants to bless us in a number of ways, but his most basic and primary and ultimate blessing is that he wants to give us the gift of knowing and being known by him. And of course, I say us because... As you might have noticed, this promise of blessing doesn't at all seem to be limited to Abram and his family. No, he says the Lord, uh, he intends to bless all of the families or all of the tribes or clans or nations of the earth in this way through Abram. He intends for this blessing to go from a single individual in his family to span the entirety of all the peoples of the globe. God is going global with these blessings. He's going global with he being our God and we being his people. He wants to restore the harmonious relationship that we once had with him in the garden. He wants to give us himself, the blessing of all blessings. He wants to overcome the judgment he pronounced in Genesis 3. He wants to overcome even his own judgment against humanity with blessing and mercy and grace. And so again, I ask you the question, do you believe that? Do you believe That God, in his abounding goodness and grace, wants to bless us. That he delights in doing good to us as his creation. It's so important for us to understand this. Because as A.W. Tozer once said, what comes to mind for us when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What is your default and dominant view of God? That, 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 That... That is the most important question in life. Your default and dominating view of God in life will be what causes you to to either run to God or from Him in the midst of sin and suffering. It will be what controls the way you you treat other people. It will be what, what causes you to trust and believe in Him or not. So much is at stake with regarding our view of God. The Puritan John Owen, he, he once said that so long as the father is seen as harsh, judging, and condemning, the soul is filled with fear and dread every time it comes to him. So in Scripture, we read of sinners fleeing and hiding from him, but when God, who is father, is seen as father, filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. Part of the issue is that we as humanity have had ever since the, the fall of our first parents in Genesis 3, is that we've believed the same lie they believed. That God cannot be trusted. That he is not good. That he's holding out on us. That's why they ate the fruit. And what's more, since we did, we also now believe and feel that his heart is intent on judging us and condemning us. That's why Adam and Eve fled and hid from the Lord when he approached them in the garden in Genesis 3. We've been doing the same thing ever since, fleeing God's presence, hiding from Him. So our psychological default is to view God as holding out on us at best, and at worst as our angry, wrathful enemy who is intent on judging and condemning us as one who's just waiting for us to mess up so that He can pounce on us. 
Parents, you ever do that with your children? You just kind of hover and wait for them to mess up so that you can pounce on them with cor- correction and rebuke? We parents can, do, can be like that sometimes. We're not supposed to be, but we can be like that sometimes. Did you see how the, this passage is giving us a delightfully different picture of who God is for us in His magnanimity? Yes, He's a God who judges because He is just. But even more, he's a God who wants to, who delights in, who longs to, plans to bless and be gracious and to be merciful, to be lavishly generous to us as his children. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33, says that the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not, listen, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. You see what that's saying? It's, it's, it's not God's most basic or most natural instinct to judge and to curse and to grieve us. His most natural inclination is to bless It's to be merciful, to be gracious. He's not watching us from heaven with a furrowed brow, impatient, grumpy, irritable. He's he's happy, he's patient, he's kind, he's generous, he's gracious. Do you see him that way? You should because he shows us here. That he is a God with whom blessing overcomes cursing and with whom love, grace, and mercy overcomes judgment. And you know what? We, We have an even greater assurance of this now than we did when God initially made these promises to Abram. Look with me lastly at C, Christ, the Lord's promise fulfilled in Abram's seed. What we find in the New Testament is that all of this talk of seed is ultimately leading up to, pointing us toward, fulfilled in, none other than Christ himself. As you know, it takes a long, winding, topsy-turvy kind of road to get there. And so often, because in the Scriptures, whenever prophecies or promises are given, their fulfillment is often more a bit complex than we typically think. They're more like three-dimensional fulfillments rather than two-dimensional. There's often an immediate fulfillment and then a greater fulfillment later on. And it's important that we understand that when we read the book of Genesis and really the whole Bible because there are all sorts of places where this is the case, where there's often a shadowy fulfillment to a promise and then later on a fuller, more substantial fulfillment comes. And what I'd suggest to you this morning is that while this promise to Abram and his seed has its immediate fulfillment in the nation of Israel, Jesus, as one pastor put it, is like Cinderella whose foot alone fills the glass slipper. Jesus is the only one who fits all of these promises perfectly. And you can see there's a promise to Abram concerning a nation of descendants coming from him and living in the land of Canaan. And there is a a physical fulfillment to that promise. There's an immediate physical fulfillment in the nation of Israel being rescued and formed by God in the Exodus and then being brought into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it's there where they are commissioned to live as a new humanity in a new and restored Eden-like land, as it were. And to be God's special people there in God's place, under God's care, 
to be his beloved bride on the earth. And, and yet, as you read on in the story, you find that just like Adam and Eve failed and sinned and were exiled from the garden all those years ago, so the nation of Israel fails and is exiled from the promised land. The nation that came from Abram physically failed. The land Abram's family was promised was lost. Their relationship with God was broken, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet with all of that, the the geopolitical nation of Israel was never really the main point of these promises anyways. They They were like the wrapped up gift that you're given on Christmas morning. You know, you delight in receiving the box and it's got beautiful wrapping paper and bows and it's it's amazing looking, but the gift is inside. The box can be discarded. The the, the same is true here. Israel was the box that the gift of the offspring, the gift of promise, was delivered in. Because when the Old Testament comes to a close and you turn to the very first page of the New Testament, you find immediately in the first verse of the first chapter these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is Matthew's way of showing us That Jesus is the true and long-awaited offspring of Abraham in whom the true and lasting blessing of God comes. The one in whom and through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul tells us in in Galatians 3.14 that this promise of all nations being blessed in Abraham comes to us because Christ has redeemed us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, come to the nations, come to all the families of the earth. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, Christ is the offspring of Abraham and of the woman who has come to give us the promised blessing of God. And how did he do it? as the Lord always does, he he did it in the most unlikely way. In a way you never would have expected. You know, just like God came to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he told him, go, you know, leave your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. I will bless you and bless all nations through you. In the same way, the Lord said to his very own son, go, leave the, the perfections and pleasures and praises of heaven. Go to be the promised blessing to all my people, a people from every family and nation of the earth. And in that, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, came for us. But then he came, and instead of his being blessed to be a blessing, instead of his merely being blessed to be a blessing, he was actually cursed. To be a blessing. He wasn't just blessed to be a blessing like Abram was. In a way you never would have expected, the God who loves to bless and yet who is also just to judge and curse when our sin demands it. He took the curse upon himself so that we might be blessed. He took on the curse of Genesis 3, the curse of God's judgment, the curse of God's wrath, the curse of death upon himself. And all so that whosoever believes and trusts God like Abraham did here might be forever freed from being under God's just judgment and condemnation. And instead of being under his condemnation, 
He gives all those who trust in Christ His promised blessing, His promised blessing of being our God and we being His people forever and ever. You see how much He was willing to give in order to bless us in this way as His people. He didn't just make the promise and then order things to work out in a certain way from a distance. He put skin in the game, literally. You see what what he was willing to give in order to bless you and rescue, or he himself was willing to be cut off. He himself was willing to be cursed. He himself was willing to be exiled on the cross. He himself was willing to take the nails and the thorns and the tree and the Father's wrath and death itself, all so that you and I might belong to him forever and he to us. But now with that, we're we're also given a commission here. Abraham was commissioned here, and we're also given a commission. Abram, while being blessed, was also called to go. And we, like him, were called to go. We're called to be a fruitful community that multiplies and fills the earth as we go to all nations of the earth and telling them about the blessing that God promised to Abraham and is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We're called to go and to spread this good news of what Christ has done for all people so that all the families of the earth might know and receive this blessing. We do so as we ourselves await our promised land. Yes, it's true that Abraham was promised the land of Canaan for his descendants, and in the initial typological fulfillment of that promise, they were given that land. But there's a a, a later fulfillment that we are still waiting for. We're awaiting an inheritance that's even better than the land of Canaan. We're awaiting an inheritance that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.4 is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. That's what we're longing for. And not only us, but but as we see in Hebrews 11.10, that inheritance is actually what Abraham himself was looking forward to and longing for. Ultimately speaking, Abraham wasn't merely looking to inherit the the, the land of Canaan. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, Abraham's hope looked far beyond that of Canaan and Jerusalem, which his physical offspring would eventually possess and lose, he looked forward to a lasting city, a better heavenly country, a land that will never be lost, a place where what we lost in Eden will be forever regained and surpassed. That is the the new heaven and the new earth that we find promised in Revelation 21 to 22. This land, this country, for which our hearts ache and our souls long. And so in Christ, just as we find in Genesis 12, 1 to 3 here, the curse and judgment of God is all overcome by his own blessing and by his own mercy. It's right that we sing this time of year, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That's God's plan. That's what he desires and delights to do for us, according to his own word, to bless, to be gracious, to be merciful, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. May we believe him. Let's pray.
Father, we give you thanks that you have promised blessing and that we have been on the receiving end of much, great, abundant blessing in Christ Jesus. But we still know that there's more streams that flow from you, the fount that you long to drench and lavish us in. And so we await the day of Christ's return, which is so difficult to wait for sometimes. Our souls long and ache for it, and we cry out, the Spirit and the Bride, come, Lord Jesus. Would you help us to wait with patience and with joy and with faith that you are a God who always keeps his promises and that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.